Welcome back to another episode of Comic School, everybody. I am still Mike Dando, Assistant Professor of English and Education at St. Cloud State University. And uh, I continue to come to you live from my basement um, in, in, uh, in an undisclosed location in Minnesota. Uh, we are St. Cloud State University, should really give it away. Um, but we uh, are super thrilled to welcome to the podcast today um, a super, super dope scholar and thinker and fellow nerd, uh, Sean Gilmore. Welcome to Comic School, sir. Pleasure to be here. Good to meet. Good to see you in this format. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> it's one of the um, one of the silver linings of our current our current situation. The the apocalypse silver lining is that um, we're able to get together and everybody knows how to use Zoom or or Google Meet now. So or, or uh, some reasonable facsimile of it. Right. Exactly. Some sort yeah. of like <laughs> some sort of conference software. So um, so that's. I guess been um, been one upside. Um, if you could, uh, can you just give us a little intro uh, for the folks? I know a little bit about what you do, but for the folks listening um, who are maybe interested, um, can you give us just a little bit of a rundown of, of, of where you're at and, and and what you do at the University of sure. Illinois? So uh, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Illinois which means I'm a non-tenure track faculty member. Um, I've been on the faculty since 2010, uh, and I primarily study and teach comics, fiction, popular culture. Uh, I also teach advanced composition because of course, lots of us do that sort of thing at these universities. So yes, sir. it's always in the background. Uh, the big things I do these days um, are teaching related at the university. I also do some light administration stuff. But I do a lot of non-scholarly or more specifically non-academic publishing in public culture. Oh, and nice. so I founded and edited a website called The Vault of Culture, which is vaultofculture.com. And I'm sure I'll make 17 pitches for it today. No, please do. And we'll put it in the show notes for um, sure. But it, is, but it is a site designed to foster people's attention on lots of obscured cultural objects. Um, and it's open to both scholarly and lay writers. Um, and does contain some light editorial apparatus, meaning we do offer editing and that sort of thing, but does not have the long turnaround time and arcane processes of your academic publishers. Um, and I Shout love out to academic, academic publishing. Uh, I will talk about my own academic publications in a little bit, I'm sure. But the, the, one of my big frustrations with the way that the academy handles popular mm. culture is that it doesn't have any processes to get a real conversation going. Mm. Those are starting in the last few years, including podcasts right. like this. Right. Uh, but we just don't have a good system for how to engage with the present. Um, and it has always frustrated me, and I decided to do something about it as opposed to just sit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so that is one big avenue is that I, I try to do a lot of work there, especially fostering people's projects. Mm. They can be large and small. Uh, we have a lot of comics writing, but we also have writing on things like film, 
pros. Um, and I have a lot of people on the hook for some later projects uh, once they clear up some time in a post-pandemic world. Right, for sure. Hopefully will be someday. Um, so in my other guises, I also do some scholarly work. I have work out uh, forthcoming in the near future on the comics of Art Spiegelman before Mouse. Um, so his experimental stuff and his editorial work. Um, there's a volume from Mississippi on the comics of Art Spiegelman that is long delayed, but it's supposed to be out at the end of this year. Um, and I also have a couple of short book projects that are nascent, but one is pretty much ongoing, which is on Alan Moore's Promethea, um, which was the late 90s, early aughts series, which I can describe in some detail at this point, And it makes you sound like a crazy person when you start talking about it. Um, well, it's Alan Moore. So like, Moore, I, Moore, I dare you to describe an Alan Moore project that doesn't make you sound yeah. like... It's like, Alan Moore maybe his, you bonked your head real good. <laughs> yeah, Alan Moore at his, at his most full of experimentalism. Right. With also no reins from a publisher to tell him he cannot do that in a comic book. Bananas. Uh, it's bana so it's, it, it's, it's yeah. behind me on my shelf. It is. Uh, and it's, I have a lot to say about what's going on in that book, some of which I don't think actually works very well, and some of which I think is... <laughs> Some of the most amazing comics ever made. So, <laughs> which is what happens when you get little to no any input. It's like just do your thing, man. And it's like, well, okay. Some of it's gonna be really amazing, and some of it's gonna be, oh no, don't what? Um, so, and, then, and then I have one other short bookish project that hopefully will manifest sometime. I'm trying to figure out what it would be on Jack Katz's First Kingdom, which oh, is cool. a little known, but I think really foundational. 1970s serial, uh, oversized, incredibly detailed, mm -hmm. um, planned to be a 24 issue, as he called a graphic novel from 74 to 84 or so. Um, and I have a lot of a lot of thoughts about why it didn't become the first graphic novel, which is actually, I think, the story of it is that in a different setup, when Will Eisner didn't exist, perhaps this would have been what we point to. Right. But in my mind, is one of those kind of er things that if we we've been ignoring it, even though it's been in plain sight. That's right. And I, it's one of the kind of uh, tells for me about what to pay attention to is things that I think we should probably consider why they aren't the key texts. Right. And these other things are. And uh, so that's, that's about where I'm at. Yeah. That's uh, that's. That's absolutely incredible. I want to go all of those places, um, but we're, <laughs> but we're we're con a little constrained for time. Um, because we can do a whole series on just on on just first kingdom or Promethea. Um, in fact, um, uh, I do want to loop back to to some of those to some of those titles. Um, but one of the things that we that that is kind of a, a become a tradition is because this is a comic books uh, it, it, because it's called comic school. It's right there in the title because it's a comic mm -hmm. books podcast. Um, it all all stories begin with a. Uh, with an origin story. So, um, how, so we'll, we'll go there with, we'll go there, uh, now. Um, what is your origin story in terms of, in terms of finding comics and, and how they've as, as a medium, it's stayed with you, um, or, or helped to shape your professional and personal trajectories. If that, sure. if that makes so, sense. I've listened to some of your previous episodes and I know, oh, thanks. I know a lot of other people's origin stories and mine is the, I didn't know about comics when I was a kid origin story, which is that I barely knew about comics as a kid. Sure. Uh, I came from a very small rural town in which we did not have things like an actual supermarket grocery store. 
Uh, we didn't have a sports stadium. We didn't have a movie theater. Uh, and things that kids did in my hometown was watch TV and play outside. <laughs> That's the things we did all day. Uh, Where, I'm, so, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of of both of those. I'm pro I'm yeah. pro TV oh, yeah, and no, pro playing outside. Yeah, it's For, a really good show. Save your games. save your angry emails, please. Yeah. <laughs> it means that I had a few baseball cards that came my way from various places. I think I had about a dozen comics between the time I was say six or seven and the time I was in high school. Um, and I know what they are because some of them are sitting on a shelf right over here because I stole them back from my parents. Yes. I had the four-issue Marvel adaptation of Return of the Jedi. I had a couple of... Ge- I know, it's pretty good, actually. It is, um, it's it's not, not that's why I made that face. Uh, this is great yeah, radio content of me just making faces at you. But yeah, I, I, I made that a uh, real happy and, and face I read there. It fairly obsessively because I was all of, whatever, seven at the time. And, and that's, you know, pro Ewoks, pro Return of the Jedi. Have different feelings about the Ewoks situation now, but, you know, <laughs> as we all do. We'll accept your angry emails on Ewoks. I, exactly. I welcome them because um, <laughs> I like to debate it. I think they're fine, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. uh, but had issues of things like a couple issues of G.I. Joe, a couple of Batmans that were just scattered Batmans from like the 400s era. Right. Of the numbering, you know, like, so no, no, nothing in continuity. Um, and I didn't really even know that there was a lot of comics to mm. be had. You know, like, it just wasn't a thing. I was well aware that there were comics for things that were on TV. So, like, I knew there was an Amazing Spider-Man show. And I was also aware that you could probably read that somewhere. <laughs> but it wasn't a thing I knew how to get. <laughs> and we didn't, you know, go to places very often that would get it. And then when I got to college, especially my undergraduate, I went to a... Uh, state liberal arts school in Missouri called Truman State, which I still advocate very highly for. I tell everybody you should check it out because it's actually a really good school. Truman uh, State, you're not going to believe this, but yeah. uh, I have I have many friends because uh, I I was in Missouri for a while. Truman's out in Missouri, um, <laughs> but I I was we were in St. Louis for for a long time, mm-hmm. and I have lots of friends who who speak very highly so shouts out to truman state it is uh it is it got set aside i can i can digress on the history of that school if you'd like but it got set aside by the state legislature in the 90s to basically be the only state liberal arts school and so it has a really specific role but the thing it does is it's a state liberal arts school (laughs) so it doesn't cost forty thousand dollars a year and it combines you know the kind of you know land grant mission with actual liberal arts study and that's where people started showing me comics, you know, so I hung out with the arts kids and the theater kids. Um, I was a physics major and then I got an English as my second major, which is how I ended up on this path. Uh, so I, ha- I got both degrees eventually, but the uh, I know it's a uh, it, <laughs> weird choices. No, me. that's awesome. That's that's a good mashup. I like it. Yeah. Uh, and it was the kind of thing people did at that school too. Everybody had two degrees or like one degree and four minors. It was just the plan everyone was on. Um, and I started reading like Sandman and you know, the, the kind of (laughs) business with almost no context. Like I want to make really clear. You gear shifted from GI Joe to to Neil Gaiman. So (laughs) awesome. Relation to anything because it wasn't as though like I'd been reading the 20 years that those writers were responding to for sure. Just that the theater kids all had collections of Sandman, yeah, <laughs> and they would let me borrow twenty issues at a time or whatever, and so I read them, um, right. and it was uh, mind breaking. Like it was just straight up unexpected. I didn't even know you. I didn't know there were such things that you know not only dealt with those kinds of topics and storylines, but also 
were actually trying to do something aesthetic with them. Mm. Like I would have believed that people were making comic books about myths, for example. Mm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you go actually look at the pages and you're like, holy crap, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. what they're actually putting out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, I didn't go too far down that path. My other main interests in English literature at the time were things like British modernism, Joyce and Wolfe, American modernism, people like Faulkner. And I really was interested in the visual stuff in, in literature. William Blake, for example, you know, I did a number of papers on along the way because I really was interested in the kind of high art side of the literary. And it was very clear to me that there was a real through line to all of that. You know, like I didn't know what it was going to be sure. for me. But it's like, oh, yeah, people have been trying this art plus words thing for quite a long time. <laughs> I am a very new entrant to it. I should probably figure out some parts of it. Um, and then by the time I got into graduate school, which was in the aughts, um, it was clear I needed to figure out how a path through all that. And that's when I actually started really reading the kind of history of comic stuff. Uh, so I made myself go read all, uh, not all, but a whole swaths of 1950s and 60s comics that people said were notable. I figured out how much there was in various categories, sure. which I have to admit was daunting <laughs> when you just like see the amount you would have to cover if you wanted to become, say, a scholar of Marvel specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like, that's going to take a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> And by the time I got to my dissertation and sort of specifying what I wanted to do, I started a dissertation that was going to be both about comics and prose. And after a year or so of that, realized that that was a foolish dream because turns out you have to finish a dissertation. That's an actual important part of writing one is that it should be. I'm also highly, I also highly recommend finishing those of you listening who may be in the midst of it. Go ahead. Get, get to it. Everyone doing this. Finishing yep. is a real thing. It's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm pro finish, <laughs> pro finishing the dis, the um, dis. So I basically exploded the middle of that dissertation into what I wrote, which was a dissertation about how the graphic novel became a publication format. Like, why do we have books of these in bookstores? Because it turns out, I still don't think people explain that very well. <laughs> um, but also, that's a lens into the long history of trying to make long form comics that also work outside of just comics readers, right? There's, and there's lots of different angles on that. Lots of people have tried different projects in that vein, but that I think actually is one of the histories of comics itself, which is this can't just be confined to a niche readership that in fact, we have to actually be doing something else and some people have tried very obvious versions of this, <laughs> you know, so like Art Spiegelman goes to Pantheon and signs a deal for Mouse. That's like the obvious version. <laughs> right, right. There's a, there's a publisher who will let you do it. Uh, okay, cool. And a lot of people have tried other strange adventures <laughs> to try to make <laughs> long form what's happen. And I love all of them, you know, like I'm in, right. I'm in for whatever strange ideas people had and the attempts they made. Uh, it's what I like a lot. And so that's what I ended up writing my dissertation on was that trajectory, um, which I basically put together the, the impulse on modernist unity, meaning this thing has to hold together right. some principle, right? It can't just be a sequence of stories. It has to be organized and seen to be organized mm-hmm. with the actual 
corporate side of developing a publishing apparatus that was ready for it. Right. Because right. if all we had done was magazine spots for into the aughts, right, we would not have graphic novels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we would just have, you know, short form magazines like Mad would be all we'd ever see. But the publishers also got themselves ready for it at the same time. And those two things, I think, are locked together. Like you couldn't have one without the other. And so that was the argument I made. Um, and then since then, I've been kind of pursuing projects that spun off of that. When I teach, I introduce some of those elements, depending on the form of the course. Uh, but that's been the kind of backstory of how I got into all this and how I think about it. Um, I have I have so many questions, not in a bad way, in a in a really interesting so many, way. So I have so many. I so many. <laughs> um, I'll just say that it's fine. Okay, so so let me ask. Let me let me follow up one thing. Um, that one of the many things that 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 you said that was interesting um, in terms of sort of what grabbed you and what, and what the, and you said the, you mentioned the word through line, right? Um, is, is the hold that, or, or the draw that comics as a medium, graphic novels as a particular form of publication um, is what drew you in? Would you say that there is a through line, there is an overlap in terms of, and yes, I am going to make a direct comparison. Um, you know, when we think about these, um, when you think about these more long form stories, so we'll, we'll go with two that we've talked about. So thinking about Watchmen, for example, Alan Moore, Watchmen, that's sort of like this big, long, sort of epic story, and Faulkner, like Yachna Patofna County. <laughs> So is the through line, the es- is it the aesthetics and the stories? Is it the stories like what, it, it's that you you had my attention and now you have my curiosity, right? <laughs> like, does that make sense, right? Like, <laughs> what about it? What about comics for you? Um, and when we say comics, I mean, we, we can talk about superheroes or we can talk about um, some of the indies. It really doesn't matter. But but the, the, the medium, what about the medium is grabbed you and, and kept a hold of you to, to and won't let go? Because I'm the exact same way. And so are so many of us. So there's actually two parts of that. I'll split it apart because I'm sure. that sort of person who will do that. Um, one is that I think comics as a medium is, s- continues to be, I should say, more flexible than other media often are. Um, and that's not to say that, of course, there are experimental films, there are experimental prose novels. I love some of those things. You know, if you show me a weird typeset page from the 70s and I'm like, thank you, Faderman Stukanek, I'm on it. Let's, <laughs> thank you, Mark Danielewski for House of Leaves. I love to teach it. Right, right, you know? right. But by and large, that is not the history of prose or film. Comics, sure. it is. <laughs> the history of comics to date is a history of strange experiments. That's, that's what people have been doing. And I am, and I mean that, like it is, it is also a history of super conventional bland comics, right? Like I don't want to dismiss the, the marketability of the sales rack of 1953 or whatever. Sure. Of course it's that too, but the, we wear our experimentation on our sleeve as a field in a way that I find much more engaging because of the access it gives us to that history, right? It is very hard, I think, to really, and I've I've thought about this quite a lot, to be honest. It's really hard to draw a through line between the experimental film movements of the various periods 
even though each of them is very interesting. <laughs> For sure. Right. And I, I mean, and I'm sure some brighter scholar than I has a good through line. You know what I mean? It's like, if you spend a lot of time with it, maybe you see a connection. I don't. Awesome. <laughs> right. For me, one of the things about studying comics in particular is that we have, because it has been both a niche medium, but also because of this variety of publication formats, venues, and types of audience, it has been an experimental medium for all of its modern existence, right? Since Topfer on, basically, it's just been all over the place. Yes. <laughs> In a way that is more generative for me as a scholar, to be honest, right? And that's not to say I don't want to do projects on prose. I have a languishing project on Yakubunatafo County and how Faulkner used the maps that he included in the portable Faulkner edition. I got a lot of thoughts right. on that kind of thing. And but to be honest, most of the people who study Faulkner really just want to talk about prose aesthetics and kind of internal aesthetics to a particular work or small set of works. And comics, to be honest, I think invites really broad connections because of that kind of experimentation and all those links in the genealogy. Um, and that's an argument I've made both in print and I make in person all the time is that I feel like you just get to go more places with comics. And I'll pick a particular example. It's one we haven't mentioned, but I just taught it. So I've been thinking a ton about it lately, which is um, Sonny Liu's The Art of Charlie Chan Akchier, uh, an Eisner Award winner from 2015, where the main character is a Singaporean comics artist and we follow his life story, but his life story is borrowing comics forms and aesthetics from other cultures to make a specific comic aesthetic. And I feel like that's it. You know what I mean? It's like, that's what comics do in a way that is more direct and overt in than other media often are. And I love being able to figure that out. You know, I love playing with that, figuring out what connects well. Sometimes it's just a reference in one book to another one style, but for something like Liu's um, Charlie Chan Hak Chie, right? Literally, you can go pull up the example pages of the Eagle magazine from Britain from 1951 that he borrowed that from and the Pogo issue with this over here. He literally takes a trip. The character takes a trip to the 1988 San Diego Comics Convention and meets Jack Kirby, but also narrates it with a Dark Knight Rises page because Dark Knight Rises would have just been published and that's a book he now has access to. That history is on the page in comics in a way that mm. I can't get enough of. You know what I mean? It's like mm. you have to keep it in the history. And I, I don't see it that way in most films, most most prose, even though I love studying aspects of those things. And it's it's so interesting. Um, I, I love the phrase history of strange experiments. Um, that in and of itself, I mean, sure, it, in, in, in and of itself, that maybe yeah. will make that the title of this, uh, of, of, of this, uh, this episode, because that has such a silver age feel to it. Uh, that has such like sure. a, almost an EC feel to it, right? The history of strange experiments, but I like it because it then to me, you, you mentioned it brings up um, the medium itself provides access and access to whom well if you've got at the time you know even and and i call myself uh post young i'm not old yet but but i'm not <laughs> um i'm pre-internet i'm pre-internet i was around before dial-up so um but if you had a couple nickels to, to to rub together you could you had access to art 
you had access to stories. Um, you had mm -hmm. access to world building. Um, and that was true whether you were growing up in rural Missouri or uh, in my case in Pittsburgh, um, <laughs> working class Pittsburgh or, or California. Um, and so that, that idea of access to whom and then how did we learn to appreciate, for example, world building so that when Faulkner comes along with his maps, we're like, oh, yeah, you. So Faulkner's mapping onto DC universe or Faulkner's mapping onto Metropolis, not the other way around. Like we had come to appreciate, for example, narrativization of, of, of these stories and uh, the serialization of these stories yep. in particular ways, um, which and, and one of my gripes with the Academy is for some reason we appreciate, we can, we are supposed to, we are told to as English majors appreciate world building in one way, but then Jack Kirby's great. If you've got, maybe if you've got the time um, and there are some yeah. people who, who completely would disregard the King. Um, and so I wonder, I, I, I'm wondering about that as, you, as, as you're, as you're talking. Yeah, the, the reason I wanted to split it off is I, I think there's that whole history of experiment business that I put sure. into. But this other question of sort of access and how people recognize what's happening in a medium or its works is I think, and, and you know, to be honest, when I teach, this is what I want to things I want to stress to students. It's like, you know how some of this works already, right. <laughs> right? It is part of how you know to read. How did that happen, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? Because... <laughs> Now, students may not think of this, but right, hermeneutics, the way in which we know to read, is not right. natural. It's not as though it's not as though we actually, you know, all grow up knowing that a 24 front frames per second, uh, two hour long viewing experience is obviously a kind of storytelling. That's just a thing we don't. As clearly, <laughs> my three year old same just told with, me that actually. <laughs> exactly. Same with some static images with some white space between them and some bubbles with words is an obvious thing. It's I mean, I barely find it obvious and I do this all the time. Right. <laughs> More alienated from me most days than you'd expect. Uh, I find it like, really? We settled on this? Hmm, fascinating. <laughs> but I think one of the things that, you know, and not to harp on this Faulkner argument, sure. but... No, no, no. The reason with, with people like Faulkner is Faulkner was reading comics, right? Yep. Picasso cites comics in his innovation of cubism, right? That's Thank like you. literally... That's like literally words that came out of his mouth that uh, that uh, Gertrude Stein writes down in the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Like, that's a thing Picasso said. I was reading Captain Zammer Kids and I went and finished the Gertrude Stein portrait. Okay. Um, and then, As uh, one does. Uh, hey, as one does. That's just, that's a day-to-day -day in Paris in 1906 or whatever year that was. Uh, let's not all spend a lot of time thinking about talking what Picasso was up to in 1906 uh, yeah. in Paris. But, we'll edit this part out. <laughs> But Faulkner is reading comics, right? So are most of the mid-century prose people who are writing, but so is their audience, right? So when Faulkner gets around to the portable Faulkner library that Viking puts out, that's a mass market product for an audience that needs mm. something to grab onto. So it's got a map of Yakima Tafwan to cover, right? It's built to be a coherent world, even though the novels of Faulkner are not that coherent. <laughs> <laughs> right. How does this line up with this? That that date doesn't make any sense. If he had it, if he had you know DC editorial, they would have made him fix. Kevin Feige would not right. let this stand. <laughs> and, and I think there's a, a a real connection there 
uh, because of the putative audiences, mm. because of the shared cultural development that we often pretend is not that the case. We pretend like Faulkner was really only writing for one really small set of academic readers who are living in the South called New Critics. That's right. And in fact, Faulkner, like most other authors, wanted a popular audience, mm -hmm. right? And his publisher definitely wanted a popular audience. <laughs> and they did some things to try to make publishers that tend work. to. Yeah, so, and, and I feel like we have a discourse, particularly because of the cultural high-low split kind of crap that we all traffic right. in some days. Right, right. That pretends that we're not all living in the same ongoing cultural moment, <laughs> when in fact we are. And it strikes me as really strange to segment all that off. And comics are really a way to sort to get at that, right? Especially in the 20th, early 21st centuries, they yeah, really expose some of the logic right flaws in how we talk about aesthetics and i and like I, to do that oh, you know? so i like to show like how strange our terms actually are it's such it's such a good point um and i think it's it's important and i wanted to just jump in in that it's an ongoing cultural moment i want to just i want to just high i want to if i was reading right now if i was reading a transcript of of this uh, i would highlight that because talk to anyone almost anyone who spends time with comics and they'll tell you that it's it's in oh, many ways contemporary mythology so we have this idea of entire departments at the university dedicated to the classics right to classics department right and it's an interesting way to think about an ongoing cultural moment conversation and movement and the degrees to which audiences can and do and will engage so um, you know, just looking at, we can get into issues of maybe even <laughs> transmedia or, or what have you, but this idea of learning how to see a story and think about a story has translated really, really well, um, always, but it's always been in whatever the medium of that day is, right? So it used to be oral tradition because as you said, it was like, I'm gonna like go outside and watch TV. That literally is like the classics tradition. Well, there's stories on the playground about right, that exactly. TV. Right, exactly. We tell stories. Right, right. And so like Ninja Turtles episodes or whatever. Right, but, right. And <laughs> and so we have this. We have we we have globally uh, storytelling traditions, um, and it's it's always interesting for me to look at how how this is happening in these, as you said. Uh, those cultural moments because right now we're in this pandemic and everybody just re just recently couldn't wait till Friday so they could go watch WandaVision and I had to stay off my social media if I didn't get to it if I didn't stay up till 3 a.m. like a maniac um, <laughs> or a young person or both um, yeah. you know it, everyone was talking it was part of this contemporary discourse right which as a it comics guy no, go ahead. Yeah, and not, to, not we could talk about WandaVision for the rest of time because I, right. <laughs> I right. got so But the reason that show is culturally legible to everyone, the reason people can all talk about it, right, on Twitter and spoil it and, and get mad at stupid lines and not Come on. get the it. The reason that's legible is not just because we had comics, but because all the comics were playing off everything else the whole time, too. Right. So Kevin Feige and company all pretty brilliantly brought some of that together. Right. So, you know, there's some credit given to just like 
the idea that they can build the MCU and make it legible, but it's legible because it's drawing on comics that are very published through the 60s to the 90s, and because of all the cultural back and forth that brings us a comic book TV show that's about TV shows, right, that we've all grown up with, and is also about a corporate product called the MCU that we're all a little too invested in, myself included. I have thoughts Nonsense. about that problem, but that's Nonsense. Right? <laughs> and, and the thing that that is extraordinary right now is I think actually foolhardy. It has always been like this. Oh, We've yeah. all been stuck yeah. in an ongoing cultural moment that is hard for us to get back to. It is hard for me to imagine the 1950s before the, you know, before right as the comics code is landing like that moment is hard for me to wrap myself in, but right. in 1953, people felt like we do now. They just right. had a different thing they were fixated right. on, and they could make things legible in different ways. It's, it's, and comics are, in my mind, a really good lens on all that business. Right, and and that idea of legibility, I think, is discursively really interesting, right? But like uh, this idea of yeah. how we talk about and how we think about these things. Um, one of the things that I think. And I, and I also argue um, the way these stories in particular, these comic stories in particular are told, have seeped into the public consciousness in a particular way. So like, and, and we'll just use WandaVision as a, as a you, can watch, you can actually watch it. And, and we, won't, we won't stay on WandaVision too much, but you can actually watch how storytelling changes. You can watch how yeah. interactive, right? It, it changes. And I love, first of all, from a meta standpoint, I love the fact that Friday night, because when I was younger, it was TGIF on ABC, right? Yeah. It was appointment yeah, viewing. That. You got, we got Family Matters. We had like all of the, right? We had all of those shows that you showed up for. And, and, and as you said, and it points back to exactly what you're saying, it's always been this way. It's exactly. just, this is how it is now. And, I, and, and, and something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the way these stories are told Yes, everything is everything old is new again, but it's it's also this remix of, a, of, for example, Brian K. Vaughn writing lost episodes, right? J.J. Abrams learning to tell. Like I imagine, all of the people that are telling stories like this now, cut their teeth at the spinner rack. Uh, probably figuratively, yeah. but depends on how young they were. Like Kevin Smith I mean, coming up and doing Clerks was reading comics well before that um and now and you know you don't, want to, you don't want to be over deterministic about it but it's oh, sure. Really, sure, sure, sure. really important to remember that what we call the golden age of comics which i, I don't love the age terminology because it doesn't i think clarify as much as it just right. says right 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 you don't but what we consider the birth of sort of the modern comic book era the the 33 to you know, late forties era, all those people grew up reading comic strips there every day. That's right. That's right. right. Every one of them had a newspaper in their house with big comic strip sections. That's and right. And guess what? The, the artists of the 1950s, what did they grow up reading? All those golden age comics. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> because that's how they were at the newspaper stand every day. Right. And so you get the, the cycle of how people are building on the thing they exactly. find very recognizable. Exactly. Not just because it's artistically important to them, but because they know the audience is built on it too. Right. And I think that's something we we pretend is not the case. Right. Uh, because for some reason, we think that it's like artistic genius transmitted to other artistic genius. When in fact, it's it, these are corporate movements and they are, are playing off what an audience is willing to spend time and money on just as much as they are aesthetically valuable. Because, of course, right. they're 
<laughs> right. And and for me, that's that's it's sort of what I'm uh, again gesturing towards, at least or at least trying to gesture towards, is this. Uh, idea of the on of of the ongoing right of the it's not a sequential and is it's not deterministic it's an organic outgrowth of ways we have learned to read and write the world around us right um it makes sense of and critique and 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 in some ways replicate and, and figure out these tensions um you know for as much as um you know for for as much as kids reading Stan Lee, Stan Lee was listening to pulp on the was listening to the shadow on the radio, right? So like there's this there's been this this continuing evolution of of how we and tell stories. But watching Flash Gordon and, and that becomes precisely. Star Wars and then Star Wars and JJ Abrams grew up watching Star Wars. Like I mean right. right? right. And we all did the same thing. Right, and now it's all owned by Disney. So um, <laughs> that's important, that's important. It, for everyone. And I hope that Disney sends my check quickly for how much I'm right. Sh- for Disney. Disney, if you want to go ahead and, and give us a, if you want to give yeah. us a sponsorship, we're 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 happy to we're happy to have you. Definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely not problematic to have two content creating corporations that own the entirety of popular culture. Not a problem. Uh, I don't. No, it's a, fine. No problems there. Um, but but I I like the I like the idea, and I think that's interesting. In and and I wonder, and maybe this is where we'll 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 sort of bring it back to the classroom. Is is how have your mm-hmm. students? You, you mentioned uh, outside comics readers, and 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 whether you're, you know, uh, and I know uh, I've had multiple friends who haven't read a comic or haven't read a lot of comics who are deeply invested in WandaVision just because this is the most current and they're ready and they're ready for uh, Winter Soldier, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, yep. just based on like, I loved WandaVision. Why would I not love more of the same kind of stuff? We're like, well, okay. But this idea yeah, of outside just- comics readers, like understand comics is not a genre. It's a medium. Okay, kid, write that down. Yep. Um, so it depends on whether you, which genres you like. Um, but I, I like. I think this is an interesting idea of of providing avenues of access to people and audiences who might not be quote unquote. We use the scare quotes here. Comics readers, right? So it's like, well, I'm not going to watch that show because I don't know about I don't know about synthesoids. Like no one cared about that. They, they... <laughs> to be blunt, neither does the show. So that's fine. <laughs> The category synthesoid does not seem to matter in the MCU, and so I wouldn't worry about that super hard. <laughs> now, maybe it should. That's a that's a different problem, but it but doesn't. Why do you think? Like, have how how have how have your students, how have your colleagues, or or, or even the folks in your circle, um, how have they accessed? How have they come? How have they come to to interact with this? As you said. And rightfully so, ubiquitous form of storytelling. Yeah, almost. so this is, I think, actually one of the the challenges, and I, I mean this in a good way, but challenges of actually teaching and uh, showing people what's out there. Mm. Meaning that once you get really into any medium or any genre, right, you recognize touchstones, even if you're not 
perfect at them all. You know, you've seen the list that says, oh, these are all the noir films. Got it. <laughs> That's the list. I'll watch them all through. Or you become the Elizabethan drama person and you know there's a checklist of Elizabethan drama for real. It's like a list of plays. We'll put, we'll put <laughs> those in the show notes. The same. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean? It gets to be the same sure. way in your head where you're like, oh, I know what the major moments are. And then you start to realize like, oh, well, no one ever talks about this, but I thought it was really interesting. What's that? Tend- you know, like you'd start to play out the canon, quote unquote, versus the non-canon, uh, where canon, just to be clear, is just the set of things we talk about. That's right. all that means. In right, right. I have, I have no interest in institutional <laughs> canons, but there is a list of things we mostly talk about. <laughs> right. Um, Stuff that shows up a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Stuff that we all kind of know the other people know. That's a fine definition for canon for today. That works. Um, whether, um, but when you when you go to teach this stuff, you have to be really selective because mm-hmm. you can't teach you know a thousand trade paperbacks in a fifteen week class. That's right. You can teach eight trade paperbacks in a fifteen week class, and even that is probably a lot. <laughs> and so one of the things I'm I'm big on doing, and I'm trying it out this semester in a slightly different way, is not just giving a range of works because I think it's important to show a range of styles and genres. Um, so this semester we started with um, Ezra Clayton Davis's Upgrade Soul as our first uh, major work, because I Ooh. thought it would be a helpful way to show what you can do these days. <laughs> yeah, you can do this, for real. It's a, like, look at this. It's crazy and good. Ra- raise your hand if your but brain just melted, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> but also when we discussed it, you know, it is like a lot of other films and TV shows mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. its concepts right Right. we have we have other media that do this topic and its themes but this is different and how that gets you to the media question the medium specificity for sure question but then we immediately moved to talking about the distinction between that and other current comics so i gave them some selections from eleanor davis's the hard tomorrow and nick jernasso's sabrina which both came out around the same time and are radically different in terms of tone and I only gave them like 20 pages of each. So mm-hmm. we're not reading full work sometimes. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, really exposes the range of what we're talking about. And one of the things I'm really stressing this semester in particular is not that these artists know every other artist's work, but they can participate in some of the same shared stylistic moves reference out to the same kinds of story beats that you've seen elsewhere. And you should just bring that with you. You have some of that in you because as I say to every student I've ever had, you are you student in front of me are the most experienced with stories that any student has ever been. (laughs) And next year's kids will be one year ahead of you because it turns out your life is just saturated with stories, Mm -hmm. right? That's what you are. Like whether you want to be or not, you are saturated with it. It just means you might have a different vein of the one you're saturated with than the person next to you and i hope that that is enough of a a hook about the kinds of things they start recognizing and then we can layer in some specifics about you know what's a comic book page actually look like and what are the terms for some of these parts of the page you know the basics of form but that's secondary in the pedagogy Mm -hmm. part Mm -hmm. right the pedagogy part is how does this engage with what you already have that you're bringing to my room Right. right. And some students I have are incredibly experienced with comics. I have students in my class this semester and the last time I taught it a couple of years ago who have read easily five times as many contemporary superhero comics as I have. 
I read some of them. I do not try to keep up. It is sure. <laughs> that is not what I can spend my time on is <laughs> is reading every strange uh, turn in DC's retroactive continuity. <laughs> I, I don't have the energy for this. <laughs> like someone tell me when it's wrapped up which thing I should read and I'll read that. You know, that's that's where yeah. I am at. I'll tell you you should read Far Sector by NK Jemison. I will just jump I in and tell you that because that is amazing. Yeah. Shout outs shout outs tomorrow. I tried to read heavy metal as it was coming out and I don't understand why they're doing it. So I stopped reading and someone will tell me when it's done. And sure. I read that three jokers thing and I don't know what that was about. So <laughs> uh, good luck DC. <laughs> I'll come back to you in a few years. We'll see where you're at. <laughs> um, but you know, I have students who are reading all of that stuff, sure. but have no experience with any indie publisher under the sun. Right. They're barely aware that there is a non superhero right. world. Right. And I've got other students who, you know, them and their roommates are trading manga every day and they're reading these series that I barely know exists because, you know, there's 28 volumes of them <laughs> in the last three years. And I'm like, please explain to me what that subgenre is. That sounds right. amazing. Right. <laughs> but it takes a while for me to catch up on that. And I want them to let each other know that that's the range of where they're all coming from. You know, I try not to obscure the differences on that point because we're not all the experts on the same thing. But my students are often experts on some specific set of things that they can bring to that class. Absolutely. And I think and, and this is maybe where we can um, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of wrap up here is I think one of the things that's interesting and maybe you've seen this, too, is as once folks and at least in my comics classes and shouts out to comic school alum uh, who are out there, but um, that once you get past not past, but once your conceptions have been disturbed about what comics are, you know, because a lot of folks, a lot of my folks have come in and, and, and said, I know that they exist. I don't know what they are. And once I knew what they are, what they could do, I was, I was in. And I think it has to do with the primacy of story to the human experience. I don't know anyone who is like, I don't care for stories. I've never told one <laughs> and I don't like listening to them. Good day. Right? Like, I don't know that. Per I don't think that person exists. So are you, what, do you think that's what keeps this medium, this medium in particular, current is what is the form and the function working together? What, what, what do you think is going to keep in 50 years, the tech might look different, but comics will still be. Yeah, so this is always an interesting thing because I, I am not a medium specificity person. If you told me that sure. 50 years from now, we didn't have a category called comics because we had developed some weird VR, you know, image panel system and we had a different name sure. for it, I'd be like, all sure. right. Sounds <laughs> good. Okay. And you know, same with when we get into arguments about like, are things before taupe for comics? Sure, why not? I mean, maybe the term is bad and we should think of a different term, but I don't <laughs> see a problem with I don't see a problem with the night with the 14 and 1500s panel sequences fitting Not into a long of all this stuff. So I, for me, it's fine if if it doesn't look like it did in the 19 when it got codified in the 30s sure. to this 80. Sure. But one thing I think that is specific, and and I, this is like a test claim. I'm not sure I'd write this down and publish it, but I think about it a lot. Sure. Is that one thing that comics does that is really specific that other media can't? is it shows you, and, and the term that Will Eisner or somebody would use is encapsulation for yep. that's right. right. What, what do you choose to show in a panel? But it shows you these static moments 
not just with uh, with uh, Scott McCloud closure between them, like obviously true, but also with a reader engagement in how we interpret each of them, mm. right? There's mm-hmm. an element of reading the reader in a different way than prose, because prose also, of course, requires reader interpretation and different than film, which film goes at its own pace, but, you know, also requires interpretation. But we actually have to figure out every panel and every sequence and every page, well, how much time was in all of that? And what did I not see? Mm -hmm. And what is actually being closed? And McLeod is right that reader participation is in that gutter, but it's in the panel and it's on the page and it's in the book too. And it's a different kind of engagement one that I, I do think we're primed for, like I said, I think we have a lot of experience with, but comics and especially graphic narrative, I think actually one of the reasons that it has such a long history is that kind of participatory meaning making, right? When we, uh, I'm taking uh, Jared Gardner's uh, cartooning and comics before the 1900s seminar at Ohio State this semester, uh, which is like astonishing in its breadth. And um, But we talk all the time in that, in those sessions about, you know, how are people engaging with this static political cartoon? It's a static cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's got some mm-hmm. images. It's got some recognizable caricatures. People made a ton of meaning out of it. People went to court over it, you know, because they got sued or it sold and people had reproductions. The same thing is happening in every single panel or every sequence of panels in every comic. We are doing a lot of work there. And it's a really specific and different kind of work than... I'm going to read a sequence of sim- of sentences in a book and conjure up a scene because the scene is actually partially provided for you. And I think that's an element of comics that we don't really acknowledge is that you don't get free reign about the visual vocabulary. You don't, no. right? You know what these characters basically look like. You know what the setting looks like. But also you get free reign in thinking about what you're looking at. Um, and I've always found that that's an element of graphic narrative in particular that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. The only person I know who really pays attention to this is Neil Cohn with all those um, uh, visual and reading studies he's doing about people's panel mm-hmm. connections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody else I know does that work. And maybe they do, and you should tell me. <laughs> um, I would love to know more. But it, it strikes me as an element of why it has such a lasting presence, right? It really wants you to be there as a reader, <laughs> right? That's Ooh. that's it, what it's doing all the time. Ooh. It's saying, you have to be here for this. Ooh. And I think comics in particular do that in a way that film and prose don't really. <laughs> um, and I love both of those for other reasons, but man, you got to be there to make a comic happen. It, that's how that works. I, I think that is such, such a profound point in that a lot of times I feel like especially especially in formal learning environments mm-hmm. that the text doesn't care whether you're there or not if that <laughs> makes i'm just going to use that i i i, I just want to use this language because i find it compelling because film you can walk out it's not stopping like if you like go to a movie uh and now I, I suppose you can make an argument that you could stop it on your sure. On your, if you stop a TiVo, I suppose you can still stop that. Uh, but but the idea is <laughs> they've integrated stopping film into a number of phases oh, for, now. Right, they do that all over. Yeah. Well, but but it's it's this idea of it doesn't. It's not going to wait for you, and it doesn't require you to exist. Whereas um, 
comics and whatever forms they have taken require and invite no they don't require they invite your presence you get to decide how fast this goes they invite you into a conversation and i wonder if that is part of what makes it whether you're seven or 17 or 70 um accessible is i am a part of this not uh it and i love this notion of participatory meaning making and i'm going to think about it the rest of the day because i really feel like um I just, uh, um, I, I'm reading, and, and you can see behind me, um, uh, Boom Studios' Abbott. Um, and it's if oh, pa- yeah. if Pam Greer was Kolchak the Night Stalker. Um, and that's all you need to know, uh, right? Like, you can just jump in. Also, but- also a brilliant idea. Yes, in fact. Uh, um, it is thoroughly that. good. Salad and Ahmed uh, is ridiculously good. Um, but, but it's this idea of... Um, you're invited into the space, whether you know, literally into the space, into that gutter, into the, onto the page, you're invited in to experience the story. It's not told at you. It's you are a participant in the meaning making. And I think that's a brilliant point, which is unsurprising because uh, you're brilliant. Thank you so much much no. for coming on the show man uh i i cannot wait what well, uh can you give us the name of the um uh of the website once more and can we get, do you got your you got your shareables you got your followables um uh yeah, on, so, on twitter um, so i the the website that i run is the vault of um it is open for people's submissions or pitches uh, we do offer editorial guidance, and so we'll clean up your prose a little bit. Might give some suggestions about better arguments. Might make things a little more visual. This is a key thing that we have to do for people sometimes. Uh, but you know, it is a popular culture and cultural investigation site, and we are kind of always trying to find new corners that we don't think people have touched that we think are important. And I, I'm going to follow up on one thing you just said there. At the sure. End. Yeah. Go ahead. Element of comic studies that I find really fascinating. I'm going to mention one of my friends, who's Zach Rondinelli. Um, who was running a participatory project on the Little Nemo strip from Windsor McKay on Twitter uh, called Welcome Slumberland. He's been running it for, I don't know, six or eight months now. But it's essentially a daily read-through of Little Nemo, but with Twitter participation about his read-through. And I find that that replicates, in fact, something like what you would do if you were a reader of Little Nemo and Slumberland in the 1900s, which is that you'd sit and read it and talk to people about it in a way that, you know, most of our academic studies often don't participate in. Um, and there's an element of that kind of going on that I think is really cool. Um, a couple other things, I am on Twitter. My handle is Gipperfish, which is very funny, but it's G-I-P-P-E-R-F-I-S-H. I never bothered to change it to my actual name and I don't plan to at this point, so, <laughs> so be it. Um, and I'm around in various circles. Uh, so I'm always happy to talk to people about anything under the sun, uh, especially about comics business. Um, so they can always hit me up after this, this podcast and, uh, I'm happy to chat. Well, thank you so much very, just for your time and for your, 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 your intellect and, and for generously sharing with us, Sean Gilmore. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, and we'll see you again, hopefully soon. Uh, those of you uh, listening, um, again, you can follow me at MB Dando uh, at, on Twitter. Um, and uh, we will look forward to seeing you next time on Comic School. All right. Thanks a bunch. <laughs>